Thanks for listening and sharing our body politic. It's important to all of us on the show that we continue to shape it with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. In this episode, we cover the critical topic of voting rights, examine the news still coming out of Haiti, and explore the future of the Democratic Party. Sherilyn Eiffel has litigated voting rights cases since the 80s. She's the current president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the nation's premier civil rights law organization fighting for racial justice. She's been politically aware since she was very young, gathering with her family around the television to watch presidential conventions and civil rights documentaries. She's been a longtime legal scholar and practitioner as well as an author. I'm excited to talk with her about one of the most pressing political issues of our day, voting rights. Welcome to Our Body Politics, Sherilyn. Thanks for having me. So the Biden-Harris administration's been pushing for voting rights legislation. Some people who are aligned with that goal have embraced how the administration is approaching this, but others have criticized their tactics. And so how do you and the LDF interact with the Biden-Harris administration over voting rights? I know that Vice President Harris is well aware of the importance of voting rights. She was obviously a senator uh, before she was vice president. I had many opportunities to talk and work with her around these issues. And I believe that President Biden is as well. So I don't have any doubts uh, on those fronts. The question is always about how you are going to deal with that. How are you going to confront the moment? Many of us can remember the morning after Election Day in 2016, when many of us were really stunned that Trump had won the election. And I remember having a conversation with folks, you know, and and talking about the failure of imagination that so many of us had that we couldn't have imagined that he could, in fact, win. And I vowed that day that I would never suffer from a failure of imagination again about politics in this country um, and about what voters in this country are capable of. So I don't have a failure of imagination now, and I have no reason to turn away from my stance because what the last five years has shown me when so many people in the political realm who both you and I know know better have chosen to make common cause with the kinds of actions that we have seen over the last nine months. Because we've seen all of that, I know that it is quite possible that the Voting Rights Act, which has always been supported by a bipartisan cohort of members of the United States Congress, it does not surprise me that we cannot find any Republicans who are willing to at least state at this point their support for the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would repair the damage done to the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court in the Shelby County versus Holder case from 2013. So to answer your question, I believe that we must do whatever is necessary. Um, If that means carving out uh, an end to the filibuster for voting legislation, then it must happen. And um, I have absolute clarity about that because I truly do believe that the integrity of our democracy is at stake and certainly the full citizenship of Black people Um, 
is at stake. And uh, so that's what I tell the president and the vice president um, in terms of what I think is necessary and required for this moment. You mentioned the Shelby County v. Holder decision. That was in 2013. You're the legal expert here. Can you walk us through what got us to that moment? So let's take it back to where the power to even enact the Voting Rights Act comes from. It comes from uh, Congress's power under the enforcement clauses of the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. So we know after the Civil War, there are three Civil War amendments, 13th Amendment and slavery, 14th Amendment uh, provides for birthright citizenship to ensure that all Black people are citizens. That's basically the reversal of the Dred Scott decision. And it also provides for due process and equal protection of the laws for all persons. And then the 15th Amendment, which prohibits denial of voting based on race, color, national origin. The framers of these constitutional amendments decided that Congress would have the power to ensure that the rights in those amendments were enforced. And from that enforcement power, Congress creates statutes. The Voting Rights Act is a statute created pursuant to Congress's constitutional enforcement power. So Congress has that power. And in 1965, it enacts the Voting Rights Act and it enacts Section 5 for very particular reasons. And you can find it in the legislative history to Section 5 where Congress says that the preclearance requirement requiring certain jurisdictions to submit their proposed voting changes to a federal authority for review for preclearance to ensure that they do not affect in negative ways minority voting strength. So I love this because, you know, in 1964, uh, Congress was a bit more clear-eyed about race in this country and about white supremacy than many purport to be today. They understood that the jurisdictions that were covered by Section 5, which are mostly in the South, in the future would come up with new, what they called ingenious methods of trying to keep Black people from participating in the political process. That's the whole point of Section 5. How does that take us to 2013 then? Then we get to the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 2006, which is what the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder decision was about. Congress reauthorizes the Voting Rights Act, re-ups it, And it does it based on over a year of hearings and data collection. They amass thousands of pages of testimony and documents. They hear from experts. And they, in fact, they're surprised, Congress says in its report. We're surprised. We actually thought it would be better than it is. But it's actually worse than we expected, that jurisdictions are still engaged in these practices. And based on that record, they make the decision to re-up and reauthorize Section 5. And the Supreme Court in 2013, in the Shelby case, takes it upon itself to say things have changed in the South. Things are not what they were. This is a permanent brand that Congress is placing upon a region of the country, even though Congress had re-upped it based on all of the testimony and so forth it had received about current conditions at that time. So let me jump in here. Right now in America, when I look at all of the battles going on, I think about the contestation of truth, not just about voting rights, but many other issues. So do you think that we have a problem accepting truths? Oh, I think so. And I and I do think that this idea that things have changed 
you know, was a very 2013 kind of rhetorical (laughs) tool that you could use, right? We had a Black president, we had a Black attorney general, and I don't actually diminish the significance of that election. But uh, the backlash to that election tells a story as well, uh, and is a story about where we really are in this country. You know, Congress didn't say, we think that things uh, are bad enough that we still need Section 5. They actually developed a record. And this is where your point about truth, you know, is really important. You know, truth is capable of, of being proven. And Congress did that. I remember I was sitting at the oral argument with our clients. And um, LDF was part of the team that argued the Shelby case. And Justice Scalia, who was obviously still alive at the time, poo-pooed the fact that uh, Congress overwhelmingly voted to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act. I, sh- I shared the figures earlier, 98 to 0 in the Senate, 396 to 33 in the House. He said, well, who would vote against something called the Voting Rights Act? <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course they voted for it. You know, like, this, these are the kinds of musings that, you know, the court was prepared to share, right? So it's just, it, that's what's really disturbing to me, th- that it makes you feel bad that the Tulsa race massacre actually happened doesn't mean we shouldn't be teaching it in our schools. It doesn't make it critical race theory. It doesn't make it anything but the truth that you just didn't know. The Voting Rights Act was meant to address an unfortunate truth in this country about the ability of Black people to participate equally in the political process. Yeah, and we've been discussing voting rights in the context of Black Americans, but how do you frame the issue, the value proposition, if I can put it that way, to white Americans? There's the small and there's the large. The small practicality of it is that we, last year when we were in the middle of a, and, and we still are in the middle of a global pandemic, but when we were in the middle of a pandemic during the presidential election year, and we were in court fighting in Alabama and Arkansas and Louisiana and South Carolina to expand absentee voter opportunities, the relief we sought was not only so Black people <laughs> did not have to get two, you know, notarized signatures on their absentee ballot, which would have required them to engage with people. And, we, you know, we represented people who were elderly and who suffered from pre-existing conditions and were, you know, essentially quarantining themselves. It also would have done the same for white people. White people also were quarantining. They also, you know, have elderly white people who were afraid of catching COVID. People who had not seen their kids for months now would have to find a notary to sign their absentee ballot and had to include a copy of their photo ID. And when the Secretary of State of Alabama was asked about it, he said, well, they should just go to Kinko's. So when we bring a case like that, the benefits of it inure to all voters. Uh, When there are rules like like the Texas uh, legislature is attempting to enact, you know, that say if you come in the car to vote, to drop off, no one else in the car can be of voting age. Well, well, what about the elderly person whose adult child drives them? Uh, to drop off a ballot. That isn't even about race. That's the concrete one. The second one, which is the bigger one, is that our democracy is actually in peril. That when members of a legislature meet and pass laws for the purpose of keeping fellow citizens from being able to cast ballots and participate in the political process, when they pass a law as they have in Georgia that removes the power to determine uh, whether ballots are disqualified or not from local election boards and from the Secretary of State, and moves it to, and and puts the power to appoint the people who will do that job with the Republican-controlled legislature, I I can't understand why white people wouldn't be concerned about that. 
This is an anti-democratic move. And I think this has been the problem for I. I think too many people have seen or have regarded the work that we do as some niche issue that's about Black and brown people instead of about democracy. Sherilyn, thank you so very much for spending this time with us. Thank you, Farai. This was great. That was Sherilyn Eiffel, President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Georgia State Representative B. Wynn represents part of Metro Atlanta, House District 89, the seat previously held by Stacey Abrams. She spent her time in the legislature working to protect voting rights, and now she's running to be Georgia's top election official, Secretary of State. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Representative Wynn. Thank you so much for having me on. On this show, we've really tried to follow voting rights carefully, including Georgia, um, and have interviewed people like Ensei Ufot. Now, the current Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, is a Republican, and he stood up to pressure from the Trump administration uh, when they falsely claimed that the Georgia results were rigged. Now, he's being primaried by a Trump supporter, but if he wins the primary— How do you plan to explain to voters why you're better suited to hold office than someone who did stand up against those allegations? Having worked at the General Assembly, I have witnessed and gone toe-to-toe with our current Secretary of State, who is embracing Senate Bill 202. And so what we see here is a Secretary of State that is a double speaker. On one hand, he says, that we had a secure election in the state of Georgia. On the other hand, he is supporting Senate Bill 202 and supporting this attempt to take over our Fulton County Elections Board. I was one of the many Georgians and many Americans who was holding my breath last year watching to see what our Secretary of State was going to do. And he did uphold the law. And I breathed a sigh of relief. But the reality is we deserve better, we can have better, and we should not be put in this position The dynamics in this Georgia race are absolutely complex and very much a part of the national picture. And from what I understand, Representative Jody Heiss, who's backed by Donald Trump, is leading in fundraising with you second. How do you view the influence of former President Trump on this race? You know, I think that the former president has radicalized the Republican base. You know, I think we're in a really dangerous position. And when you think about somebody like Jody Heiss be potentially becoming our secretary of state, um, he could wreak a lot of havoc and do a lot of damage to our state. And whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat or independent or politically interested, I think all Americans agree that we need somebody who is going to protect our democracy. And Jody Heiss is not that person. Obviously, you believe in organizing, but you've also said that you can't out-organize voter suppression. What did you mean by that? What we're seeing now is the type of laws that are put into place. There is no recourse. It doesn't matter if we show up at the polls and outvote the other side of the aisle when you put into place the opportunities for the state to take over the election boards or for people to overturn the results of the election, you simply cannot out-organize that. And the one thing that I think is critically important is 
It is not the responsibility of Black and Brown and Asian voters and organizers to overcome what we are seeing. The reason we work so hard to send Biden to the White House, the reason we work so hard to send Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock to the U.S. Senate is so that we would have a Democratic-controlled body that could pass federal protections for us and for other states who are facing uh, the same challenges that we are. And the reality is to ask those people to out-organize is not just. It is unjust in nature. It's unrealistic. And we just can't do it. And you also have been active on the national stage. You were part of a cohort of 150 state lawmakers from 30 states who showed up in D.C. to urge senators to act on voting rights legislation. Did you see any results from that? To see lawmakers across the country stand in solidarity with Texas lawmakers really shows that we are in a critical juncture and we can't let this go. I think for me as a sitting state rep, having just gone through this intensive session in Georgia and us feeling like we battled as hard as we could to prevent Senate Bill 202, we actually don't have the same laws in Texas where we would have been able to break a quorum. But watching the Texas lawmakers make that decision that was incredibly bold really inspires a lot of us to recognize that we are in it together. We're looking at Texas, Florida, Arizona, Pennsylvania, And recognizing that we have to be all hands on deck to support um, lawmakers and people in all of those states. The Democratic Party right now obviously has many different factions and constituencies, but there are definitely a bunch of progressive, generally younger Democratic women who are on the national, local, and regional stages. And there is a bit of a tension between what is considered the current guard or the old guard and the new guard. How do you deal with the factionalization within the party? It is healthy for a party to have diversity within its own memberships. I mean, that is how you cultivate new ideas. And that is how you build upon the diversity of the party. It's not just, you know, gender and race and nationality, but we are a big tent party. And I think that is important. Um, In terms of how you deal with it, I mean, you know, we are a state that has to be united and the commonality that we will have going forward in 2022 is, do we want to protect our democracy or do we not? And if we want to protect our democracy, then we have to be a unified front. I wanted to touch on another issue that we've covered, which is the wave of anti-Asian hatred, uh, including killings. And we're five months past the shootings in the Atlanta area that killed eight people, including six women of Asian descent. How are you processing this as a representative and what do you want to see happen both on the state and national stages? The crime that happened in Atlanta hit so close to home and it was so brutal and violent and horrific. And I think there are lots of feelings that are mired up in that. Um, You know, we know that Cherokee County chose not to proceed with a hate crimes charge. And, you know, regardless of whether or not the hate crimes is recognized through the judicial system, uh, a hate crime is intended to terrorize an entire community of people. And the perpetrator did achieve that. But the other thing is, oftentimes when we see crimes that are this brutal in nature, we 
rely solely on the judicial system and the aftermath to deliver what we perceive to be accountability or we perceive to be justice. But the reality is justice can only happen when we dismantle those systems that allowed such an atrocious act to occur in the first place. And one of the things that I hope moving forward is that the media does a much better job of telling the story of the victims and not centering the perpetrator. As you look at your career in politics so far and this race that you're in right now, can you describe what really centers you at times where things get tough? What keeps you going? You know, I think the things that center me are obviously my family. My parents are refugees from Vietnam and a lot of what I've chosen to do for a living centered around honoring their story and honoring their legacy. So when I think about You know, my parents, two people who fled their country in the middle of the night on a boat who were coming to this country just for the possibility of a better life for themselves and their future children, that keeps me grounded. I recognize the courageous decisions that they have made to give me and my sisters a better life here in America. And, you know, I think that part of my responsibility as their daughter is to uphold that legacy. Our fight for democracy is also tied to some of that. Um... You know, they fled a country that didn't ensure that they would have the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, the freedom to assemble in free and fair elections. And the other thing is the students that I work with in public schools for 10 years, they keep me grounded and they are one of the reasons I ran for office in the first place. And they have certainly been worth all of this. Representative Wynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. That was Representative B. Wynn of the Georgia General Assembly and Democratic candidate for Georgia Secretary of State. The United States is home to the largest Haitian migrant population in the world, with large communities in states including New York and Florida. For many Haitians and Haitian Americans, the last month has been extremely difficult. On July 7th, Haitian President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated. Investigations are ongoing. Here to talk to us about it all is Manolia Charlatan. She's a co-founder of Press On, a media collective focused on movement journalism. Manolia, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you for having me, Farai. So good to be here. So, um, you know, we were chatting a bit before the the formal interview and you were talking about growing up in places, including Brooklyn and Haiti. And you had been repeatedly going to Haiti and you were there during this critical period. How would you describe the political climate before and after the president's assassination? And I want to hear also what it called up in you to be there at that time. Well, I have been, because I go back home so frequently, I actually have, I was there during the first country lockdown in July 2018. And that's important context for what happened July 2021. In July 2018, there were massive protests across the country protesting gas price hikes. That was when, you know, that was the first time that the airport was shut down. You couldn't leave. It was the first time it happened. And it began the very specific political turmoil that led to um, the events of July 2021. 
less than 10% of the population voted in the election that would lead to the presidency of former President Jovenel Moise. This is someone that did not, you know, enjoy widespread support because most folks did not really, did not participate in the election. And so folks have been protesting this government and the former administration for a couple of years. Mm. Tell us where you were when you found out that the president had been assassinated during your time there. And and where was it in like your trip or the beginning, the end? So I was um, actually in Cap Haitian, pronounced Cap Haitian. And that's the uh, northern city. That's a historical center of the country. And it was the day before I was supposed to come back to New Orleans, where I live now. We get notification that all travel is suspended and that essentially martial law had been implemented because the president was assassinated. I got to tell you, if anyone has ever lived through that, it's a very difficult thing, especially in a place like Haiti, where the justice system is not strong, right? You know, there's not strong institutions there. So to be in that kind of very difficult Political situation is a very hard thing to go through because you don't know you're in a state of the unknown. So you really we were in limbo for a good 72 hours, not knowing what actually happened and what will happen as a result of the assassination. Yeah. And and the president's widow blames oligarchs, Haitian oligarchs. So what context do we need to understand about how money flows to, from, and within the island of Haiti, the nation of Haiti, and how that affects politics? So the United States has been involved in Haitian politics and the economy for well over 100 years. For many of folks listening who may not know this, the United States actually occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1934. Both the private sector and government have been involved in Haiti. So that's part number one. Uh, The other part I want folks to understand is Haiti has a long history of a small group of people holding power, both political and economic power. And that's throughout the history of the country. And that has actually been um, a major asset to the international interventions in Haiti. So that means it's much easier for the American government, the French government, and other sort of international governments that have been implicated in Haiti to influence what's happening politically and economically because there's only a small group of people who've been running the country for on and off for the last hundred plus years. So the vast majority of Haitian people have not been part of governing. They have not had representation in government in Haiti on and off for almost 100 years. And they have not been represented in the economy as well. That means you have the, I think, the makings of a failed state. It's hard to build strong institutions that can withstand difficult political times. I'm really grateful that you're talking to us about history. I mean, one of the the areas of history that I have found really important to understand is that Haitians had to pay for their own freedom from France and now are really continuing to be economically battered. But let's loop this back to your work. You are running... Um, one of the co-founders and co-directors of Press On, a movement journalism center. How does, you know, your work in movement journalism relate to how you see our ability to understand and tell the story of big events? 
I actually got my start in journalism at a small Haitian paper in Boston, home to the third largest population of, of Haitians in the U.S. And that was because I was in Haiti two days before the earthquake doing work. And, and the work I was doing was supporting social justice movements, right? And, and trying to provide capacity and support to young people to be able to understand the country. And so as someone who was there before I was able to tap into a different kind of storytelling about how Haitians were actually coming together and how the Haitian diaspora was responding effectively with aid distribution, so as a result of that, I spent the early part of 2010 sharing stories and sharing um, sharing aspect of movement response to the disaster that was very community driven, that was very, that was very justice driven. And so when I got the gig in the fall 2010, I had already been do- been supporting the narrative of communities coming together. Right. And Mm -hmm. so for me, my actual journalism career is one of movement journalism. For me, movement journalism is about putting the community at the center, putting folks who are changing things, who are at the forefront of change in their communities at the center of the storytelling process so that they're not just, you know, subjects that are rendered it's not a transactional process to come in and say, hey, oh, this is a cool story, this community. Let me come in and tell this story. To say, no, 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 actually, the community should be at the center of the production of the story, that folks should have resources to tell their own stories in order to have their voices elevated in any analysis and any sort of broader reporting done about whatever issues that they are confronting, that they are working to change. So for me, that's the only way I knew how to do journalism was through was through my community and coming, being a Haitian person, narratives matter because the narrative power that was used against Haiti at its founding was really powerful. And the United States was a huge part of shaping Haiti as this really negative place because these folks had come together to topple colonial rule. It was dangerous for the enslaved Africans that were here in the U.S. to know that just a couple of miles off the coast that these people had done this amazing thing. And that, and that if you set foot in Haiti as a black person in America, you would be free, right? That was dangerous. And so for me, it was really important and it remains really important for us to know the full story of communities that have been fighting for change, whether it's communities here across the United States, communities across the world, across the global South, for us to understand and make the narrative more complete because the more we understand what happens to oppressed and marginalized people, the better we can actually craft and build a world and a set of policies that can enable us to govern effectively and with equity and justice. Well, Manolia, thank you so much for taking us on this deep, beautiful, painful, enlightening journey. Thank you so much, Manolia. Thank you so much. That was Manolia Charlottin, co-founder of Press On. (music) 
Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. This week on the roundtable, I'm joined by our regular contributor, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Fry. And we've also got Marina Villeneuve, reporter at the Associated Press covering New York state politics and government. Hey, Marina. Hello. So what's brewing in the political teapot today, Erin? For I think we have to start with the events in New York this week. I think that given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. So that, of course, was the Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York resigning after a damning report found that he had violated federal and state sexual harassment laws. Farai, how do you view New York Attorney General Tish James's role in all of this? Aaron, there's a fascinating backstory here. When New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman resigned with his own Me Too allegations and Tish James had the chance to potentially take the seat, she had a deal with Governor Cuomo. Cuomo said he would endorse her and open his donor networks, but she would have to endorse him and refuse the support of the Working Families Party, which is a third party coming from the left um, that, that sort of overlaps with the Democratic electorate. And so a lot of people thought that because she had done this, she would be beholden to him. But the outcome is clearly that she did not act beholden to him in any way. And she has stressed that no matter what happens, she is not above investigating people who have a strong power base, whether it's President Trump or soon-to-be former Governor Cuomo. And Marina, Cuomo's approval among New York state voters has plummeted. Uh, His job approval rating among New Yorkers fell after the report came out 16 percentage points to 38 percent. Why do you think his supporters are backing away now? Before the report came out, his support already was plummeting, but it hadn't dropped to what a low number that we're seeing now. And it really appears that uh, he's just really lost the confidence of Democrats and uh, you know, voters across the state. And he also was able to get a lot of sort of conservative support as well. And that just all seems to have eroded. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, uh, Cuomo is also facing multiple investigations, even possible impeachment proceedings at the state legislature. I mean, will anything protect him now? At this point, it does appear that there's not as much political will to keep moving forward with the impeachment probe which also could have resulted in the legislature basically preventing him from ever running for office again, which is, you know, similar to what we saw with the second Trump impeachment push. We do see, you know, obviously figures like Anthony Weiner, who tried to stage a political comeback. uh, And obviously he was done in by revelations of more allegations of wrongdoing and uh, sexual misconduct. I think it's an open question about what Cuomo is going to do next, for sure. Yeah. Farai, can you speak to just how this shows a really huge discrepancy between Cuomo's public-facing persona, you know, him being an advocate for women's rights and this liberal Democrat, and his personal behavior? I mean, how do we interpret his attempt to deny that he did any wrong and and, and attempting to discredit his victims? You know, it, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I happened to get a heads up from another member of the Our Body Politics staff during the press conference that actually, you know, and unexpectedly for many people, uh, revealed his resignation. And as I was listening to the early part of the press conference before he announced that he was going to step down, he basically said, I didn't do it, but 
I'm from an older generation and I'm sorry. And, you know, it was like you did it or you didn't do it. And, you are you know, like it was a very confusing word salad of defense and apology. And I think that that's pretty common. The huge discrepancy between his public-facing persona and his personal behavior is not uncommon. There are any number of people, including former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who then get exposed as people who have to Uh, admit grudgingly to having some form of inappropriate sexual behavior and bullying and um, entitlement. You know, all of this is power. You know, when we look at all of these questions, it's not just, it's definitely not about sex. It's about the power to command people to do what you ask them to do when you want them to do it, even though they don't want you to do it. And that's a certain form of power that can be applied in gender. It can be applied in race. It can just be applied in general with people who are all-purpose, you know, bullying or harassers. This is indeed a story about power for Ryan. I think, uh, you know, whether or not Cuomo is, is somebody who is able to return to power in some capacity is an open question. As, as Marina brought up, he certainly uh, continues to have a huge war chest, uh, even as he is leaving office in the next couple of weeks. But uh, there's still a lot more to unpack here around questions of power, who has it, who does not, and what the implications of that are for for our politics and for our society. Marina, how do you think Cuomo's resignation will reshape the Democratic Party, both in New York and nationally? Right. I think that the governor's resignation is really going to, for sure, at least in New York, completely leave open this big hole in the party. He's long been widely popular and It's a big question about just who's going to be obviously running next year. Uh, Kathy Hochul, the lieutenant governor, who's going to become the next governor in 14 days once he officially steps down. She said that she wants to throw her hat in the ring. And I think just nationally, um, it's just an example of what a lot of survivors are saying is just an example of someone sort of finally facing a consequence for allegations of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. I did think it was really interesting how a lot of top Democrats wanted to wait for the attorney general's report to come out before weighing in. So it might just set some precedent for when there is, you know, an investigation into these sorts of allegations that people are really going to speak out strongly if the report does find wrongdoing. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the only thing I would add to that, Marina, is I think it's it's going to be so interesting to watch as as Kathy Hochul ascends to uh, the governorship. Uh, New York has never had a woman governor and how that kind of reshapes our politics, both in New York, but also nationally in terms of how the electorate it starts thinking about women governing at the highest levels in, in our country uh, will be a really interesting thing to follow as well. Right. So, Farai, we need to talk about COVID. Uh, Governor Cuomo was also criticized for his handling of COVID in nursing homes. And I I wonder how that factors into his political downfall today. I want to refer to one of our former guests, um, Professor Stephen Thrasher of Medill. He did a piece earlier this spring that really broke down many of the different cases that some political observers have made for Cuomo leaving office or being impeached that didn't have to do with Me Too. 
Governor Cuomo's handling of COVID, which he he kind of puffed himself up and many people in, in the state of New York and around the country kind of viewed him as a bit of a COVID savior. But he actually defied New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio's desire to shut down the city sooner. And Professor Thrasher cites research that modeled that perhaps 17,000 fewer people would have died if he actually had listened to de Blasio. And points out that 17,000 people is six times the death count of 9-11. So Cuomo made some decisions that were not really actually in the public interest. He also cut the Medicaid budget and sent patients recovering from COVID to nursing homes, which likely pumped up the death count significantly. And now there's a lot of evidence that actually he covered up the COVID deaths in nursing homes. So, you know, the Me Too issue is what ended up taking him down, but there's been a lot else going on. Yeah. And that was also, uh, you know, a question of power to your earlier point. So uh, now I want to turn to COVID in Florida and this debate over mask mandates. Let's listen to a clip from Dr. Rosalind Osgood, Broward County School Board Chair, talking with ABC News about the school board's decision to uphold a mask mandate and defy Governor Ron DeSantis's mask ban. So we could not allow children and teachers and janitors to come into closed environments in a school, on school buses, and not be protected by masks. Farai, we're seeing teachers and school districts push back on these governors on these mask rules. Why do you think these communities are pushing back? Well, first of all, you know, it's it's COVID is something that affects people of different ages differently. But now with the Delta variant, there's an estimation that 15% of COVID cases today are among kids. That comes from a study by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association. Children under 12 can't get vaccinated. So there are a lot of parents who are really desperately trying to protect their children by having them wear masks and going to school because we know kids lost um, months and months and in some cases years of uh, you know, education equivalent advancement, like, you know, moving ahead of grade because of the pandemic and remote learning. Other parents, however, are really pushing this idea that you can't demand masks as a question of personal liberty. And this gets deeply into the entrenched culture war in America. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has done quite well in many ways by um, standing for a kind of Trumpian view of masks as a civil liberty issue as opposed to a public health issue. And this ends up pitting kids against kids and parents against parents. You know, parents of kids who want to protect their kids, they want there to be masks against parents who, for political or ideological reasons, believe that they and their kids being unmasked is more important than protecting other people and other people's children. I'm just going to put it that bluntly because this is a really basic question of how to save lives, but it's turned into, you know, political gasoline and matches. And Marina, do you think it's reasonable that some of these lawmakers are saying that it should be up to parents? I mean, vaccination rates for students are low. 30 percent of students aged 12 to 15 are fully vaccinated. Well, I know that here in New York, schools have been expecting the state to come out for months with guidance about whether they think that schools should be requiring masks this fall. And at this point, Cuomo here, he has said that he wants to leave it up to schools 
But it's really just led to a lot of confusion and debate. It's something that parents, especially of immunocompromised kids, they'd rather just have some sort of statewide policy than leave it up to just what your district happens to decide. A recent New York Times story cited that parents are okay with mask mandates in schools. There was a survey that found that 63% of parents wanted masks required in schools for people who are vaccinated. Uh, So Marina, what do you think will be the biggest challenge for schools to remain open where there is still so much debate over masks in classrooms? I think parents are demanding that if there is no mask mandate, they want a remote learning option. So I just think it's going to become pretty unfeasible at some point. Yeah. You know, shameless plug here uh, over uh, 19th News, we are talking about this issue. Uh, We've got a couple of stories up this week uh, about school nurses that are feeling overwhelmed by the uh, COVID-19 Delta surge as schools are reopening. And then uh, just, just parents who are terrified about what the situation is going to be for their children without these mask mandates in place. Uh, So we've covered state politics. We've covered local politics. Now let's turn to Washington. After a 14-hour fiery debate on the Senate floor overnight, lawmakers have now passed this budget resolution along party lines. So shout out to ABC News congressional correspondent Rachel Scott. Uh, She was talking about the Senate passing the Biden-Harris administration's $3.5 trillion budget to bolster social services and environmental programs. Uh, That legislation passed on a 50-49 vote, and they still have to decide how to spend it. Uh, According to NPR, House leaders announced that their chamber will return from summer recess in two weeks to vote on this fiscal blueprint, which contemplates dispersing the $3.5 trillion over the next decade. Farai, let's talk about what is in this bill, uh, because it's going to pour federal resources into things like climate change, health care, and family service programs. But what has been the reaction from opponents? Well, there's many different types of opponents. Um, obviously, this this passed uh, by a very narrow margin and, and a very partisan margin. There's some really um, troubling rhetoric in publications from the New York Post to ones from the ideological far right, as in the white nationalist far right, saying that this is a bill that basically just gives money to people of color and it's an anti-white, like literally the the rhetoric is, air quotes, anti-white bill. And I think it's sad and fascinating that that level of culture war rhetoric is being applied to something that is very much across the board, when I think about this $3.5 trillion bill that, you know, we're talking about, really it's been focused more, the $3.5 trillion, on also adding um, human infrastructure like childcare. And you, uh, from the 19th, obviously, Erin, have definitely been covering throughout the year how childcare is infrastructure. Infrastructure now is not just roads and bridges. It's also like, how do people actually work? Without childcare, many people can't work. It also, this $3.5 trillion bill uh, provides free community college and pre-kindergarten. And so I don't see how that is racist, but I guess you can spin anything any number of ways. It's just where we are today. Uh, You already have the uh, Biden-Harris administration kind of touting how they uh, believe the care economy policies are are showing up in in this legislation that just got passed, especially in terms of child care provisions, lowering costs for families, helping businesses, helping to grow the economy. So really trying to appeal uh, to folks uh, at the very local level in terms of how this legislation is going to impact their daily lives. I, I guess to that point, Marina, you cover, you know, state politics. Can you talk about 
what legislation like this and 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 the, their kind of agenda to to rebuild the country uh, in the wake of the pandemic, how that is going to be playing out with with voters. Right. Yeah, we know that here in New York, Senator Schumer said that the state can expect a flood of money to upgrade and repair, especially New York City mass transit networks. And so that's, you know, something the senator said that that's more money than we've ever seen from infrastructure for the federal government. There are a lot of infrastructure projects that New York is really hoping for, including this extension of the Second Avenue subway to East Harlem. These sort of investments could make a huge difference in everyone, in a lot of New Yorkers' daily lives, which is being able to have shorter and less crazy commutes. And I'll just, you know, jump in as someone who has lived in New York most of my adult life. One of the things that we also have to remember is that during COVID, so many subway conductors and other subway workers died because they were very much on the front lines. And among other things, I really hope for a resurgence of the New York City subway, which serves people from around the world as something that can come out of this bill. Yeah. Among the people in this country that we learned were absolutely essential in the past year and who should be treated as such as we look ahead to our new normal. Well, that was a lot of tea, but that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Farai and Marina. Thank you, Erin. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Marina Villeneuve, who you can find on Twitter at Reporter Marina. She covers New York state politics and government at the Associated Press and also regular contributor Erin Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. And she will also be interviewing a variety of people at the 19th Represents, a free virtual summit you can find at 19thnews.org. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by LWC. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua is executive producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Our senior producers are Paulina Velasco and Sarah McClure. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Emily Daly is assistant producer. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt and Vita Chand. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, the Be Me Community, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. Thank you.